0: Hi, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're uh, starting a new book of the Torah, Sefer Vayikra, the book of uh, Leviticus. Um, it's also called Torah's Kohanim, which is um, talking about the uh, offerings that were brought in the, in the Mishkan. And um, just in terms of just the, the flow of the Torah as it's been developing right now. So we know um, in, in Sefer Shmos, in the book of Exodus, we're talking about the Jews getting their freedom in the Torah and then building the Mishkan. And of course, we said uh, in the name of the Ramban that the whole idea of building the Mishkan was really turning the whole world into a dwelling place for God. In other words, this wasn't just—it's the implications were much broader than just thinking of it as a uh, a, a tabernacle or a sanctuary in the desert. That really, this idea of a dwelling place for godliness in this world. Was the idea of ultimate transformation of the entire world into, into that. And of course we know on a deeper level that God already fills the entire world, God already dwells in the entire world. So so we always have this idea that it's our, our job is to reveal this truth, to reveal this reality, right? Um, so that is in a in a nutshell, that's that's the book of Exodus. Now we're now we're flowing into the the book of Vaikra. Um, and in Vaikra, we're already talking about. Um, I'll use this word very deliberately right now because I'm going to try to address it in a moment. We're talking about sacrifices um, that you would bring to the to the Mishkan, to the to the Tabernacle. And um, the way it was explained to me, I thought very beautifully, was that this is now the idea of Shekhinah maintenance, meaning to say that. Now that the shekhinah is here, you want to keep it here. The shekhinah is the idea of the um, really sort of like the, the, the palpable, visceral presence of godliness in the world. Like God is always here, but but everything is in terms of levels. All of life really is in terms of levels, right? So 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 God can be present, but He can also be concealed, and there's no contradiction. So God in this world, relative, God is as present in this dimension as he is in the highest heavens. However, he's quantumly more concealed. That doesn't mean he's less here, but it means it's harder to see. And there, there's no contradiction there. You can be very present, but you can also be hidden. Like if you're hiding in the closet, you say, are you not there? No, you're right there, but you just can't be seen. So God of course if you open your eyes can be seen absolutely everywhere. There's, there's no place where you can't see God if you open your eyes, right? But the question is just how revealed is God? So when we talk about the Shekhinah being present, that that's a that's jargon, that's sort of Torah jargon for um, the, this aspect of God being revealed that you can really feel in and his presence. This is this is the idea. So so, this the the degree to which God is revealed, it goes up and down in this world. Um, imagine if you're in a, a home with a lot of anger, where every everything you say is the wrong thing, everything you say, everything you do is the wrong thing, and elicits yelling from the other person. That's a very scary environment. Now imagine you're in a house that's filled with love, where, you know, you're encouraged and, and nurtured. So in one environment, it's, you know, it's, you don't feel the godliness. In another environment, you very much feel the godliness, right? So depending on how we are, because we are emissaries of this consciousness as well, um, how much godliness is flowing through us, how much revelation of God's presence in this world is flowing through us, to the extent that we're understanding and kind, then people feel God in the world more. To the extent that we're angry and vindictive, then people feel God in the world less. So, so you see, the degree of revelation of godliness is, is, goes up and down. But God's presence, the amount of godliness in the world never changes. God is 100% saturating all of reality, but the amount to which we perceive him goes up and down. So this is the idea of the Shekhinah going up or going down, right? Okay. So now this gets back to vaikra, Because, you know, the way Rabbi Green said it once so beautifully was that every romantic movie has the same plot line, basically. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. And then the movie ends, right? <laughs> Usually with a wedding, and then the movie ends, that's it. So I heard Rabbi Green say one time, I want to know what happens next. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, okay, now that you have each other, how do you live with each other? Right? Because we know that this is a big challenge, you know? Like, first of all, it's a challenge just to find the other person. But once you do that, how you can have a successful living together is, is not an easy thing, you know? So Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus, ends... Basically, with the idea that we've built a home together. Right? That's the completion of the Mishkan. We've built a home for godliness in the world. But now, we have to keep that relationship going. So that's the idea of, again, Shekhinah maintenance. Now we have to keep the relationship alive. The marriage going. So, So how do you do that? How do you do that? And so... I told you that I was going to try to address this word, and now I want to do it. and And this now we're getting more to what I really want to say. So, a lot of people use this word, and you see it in Torah books and things like that. And I'm I'm not um, I'm not criticizing the uh, authors because the authors are doing great things by putting out these works and everything like that. But um, but I do want to zero in on a word. Uh, the translation of a word that I think does a lot of damage and and undermines a lot of the concept that the torah i I, I feel is saying, and that's the word um, so in Hebrew we use the word korbonos. Korbonos are these is is translated as um, sacrifices. and I really, really, really don't like this word sacrifice. <laughs> I I think that it's a very non-Jewish-sounding word in in my ears, um, um, extremely so. Um, And it also, furthermore, undermines, I think, the real concept of of what's being transacted here and what's going on here. So, the word um, korban uh, has the root in it, in Hebrew, karov. Karov means to come close. So the word that's translated as a sacrifice in Hebrew actually means an act of coming close. So let's, let's sort of like weigh the, the merits of these two words for a moment to, to show you how, how off the, the, the concept is being uh, translated. When I sacrifice something, I take something that I really want I mean, and and, and I, I lose it. It's a sacrifice. Not only that, but the concept is, is that if I do something wrong, then the, then the Torah is telling me I have to be, bring a sacrifice. So in other words, here's how I would understand it, just in terms of just who I am. I would say, oh, now I'm being, if I do something wrong, I'm being penalized. And the penalty is I have to give up something that I don't want to give up. Now, let me ask you this. What type of relationship does that create? I did something wrong. And by the way, you should know, it's not that I did something wrong deliberately. I did something wrong by accident. Because if a person, say, breaks Shabbos, and they do it by accident, then they bring a Corbin. If they did it intentionally, they're not allowed to bring a Corbin. In other words, if it was an act of open defiance, there is no sacrifice that's brought for that. If a person just made a mistake, then, then that's something that you bring a sacrifice for. Okay? So now let's go back to this conundrum. I did something by accident, and now I'm being penalized, and I have to give up something that I don't want to give up. <laughs> To me, that creates a very hostile relationship. Right? I mean... Now, let's return back to the Hebrew word. Right? With the the word that the Torah is actually using. You would bring a korban. A korban, again, the root of that word is karov, which means closeness. So, I did something by mistake. Right? I, I forgot your birthday. Right? I forgot our anniversary, but I didn't mean to. I'm not trying to insult you or hurt you. I just forgot. It happens. People are human beings. So I forgot. And now, so in forgetting, what did I do? I distanced myself from you on some level. Right? Because, you know, you wanted to share that moment together. That was an important moment. So I, I forgot. So in doing in forgetting I distanced myself from you and so now what is required to fix that distancing an act of closeness So 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 that's that's what the that's what the the uh, are. these are these are acts of closeness to repair a distancing in the relationship right and now if you want to express an act of closeness, then that takes giving something from yourself, right? You have to, do, you have to go a little bit above and beyond. That's how you make yourself closer with someone, right? You, you, you give more of yourself. So this idea of the offering is you're giving more of yourself in order to show how important the relationship is. And and God gave us that. Now again, it just we always have to think of all of the mitzvot as um, as 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 a relationship with God. In fact, the word mitzvah, um, the root of the word mitzvah, means to bind or to tie, right? And another epically horrible translation. It's mitzvot are translated as commandments, right? Which again, establishes this idea of a dictatorial relationship between God and his creations. The dictator is commanding you to do X. Now, again, what type of relationship does that create? Now, remember, we have many facets, many paradigms in terms of understanding our relationship with God. One is, and and you you find them all over Tanakh. You have father and child. You have king and subject. You have mother and child. You have best friends. You have in Shir Shirim. You have lovers, right? And that that paradigm is called the, the Holy of Holies. Rabbi Akiva called that paradigm the Holy of Holies. To be in that type of intimate type of relationship with God, right? But if you just see it through the lens of commandments right? I mean, there's a place for that concept. But for that to color and define your entire concept of who God is, is to completely misunderstand what, it, what this world is all about, and what you are all about, and what God is all about, and what we're supposed to be doing is all about. So, so a relationship has to be maintained. That's that's the amazing thing about a relationship. And it's an evolving it's an evolving construct. You know, my, my father, one of the things that he would say in, in terms of therapy, he said he said, relationships are like house plants. If you don't water them, they die. And I love that because of the utter simplicity of that. You know if you have a plant and you never water it, it dies. It's so simple. And that's a relationship. A relationship requires an involvement. And the the beauty of living a Torah life is that God has constructed... This roadmap of how we can be in this incredible, loving, best friend, ultimate relationship with him. You know, can you imagine it's sort of like, um, like, like, and it's filled with surprising things. Like, you know what, every circus, bring me a bouquet, a bouquet. And you know what the bouquet should be? It should have four species to it. A lulav, an esrak, a ravim, and chadasim. Right? It's like, oh, okay, now I know. I bring a bouquet to God on on Sukkot, right? You know what, on on Rosh Hashanah, let's go to a concert together. I want you to play the shofar for me. (laughs) right? Every Shabbos, you know what? Let's light candles and have dinner together. I mean, you have here like this beautiful outline for a relationship. It's an, it's an amazing, beautiful thing. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. And that's what all of these, all of these um, Parshas, about the Mishkan, in terms of the acts of closeness, right, the korbanos, the, 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 the acts of closeness that we're supposed to bring, that are going to go into great detail, like which, which animals and which thing, what, the specifics, right? Don't, don't lose the headline in the details, right? Because these parshas are filled with details. But don't lose what the headline is. The headline is maintaining a relationship. And, and and every one of these things can be applied to our own life, you know? Because, look, if you do one thing that's a little bit off in terms of your relationship, and then you bring the exact same answer as when you do something else which is radically different, something's a little bit off. You know what I mean? Right? So, you know, if you... Um, you know, every every different situation requires a different response. So God is spelling out all the different responses that the different that the different distancings in the relationship require as a fixing. And we have to understand that again in our own life. You don't want to do the same you don't want to do the same response for everything that goes wrong in a relationship. You have to understand what the situation is and then you Figure out what what new thing, what different thing is required to fix it. Now, I heard something very beautiful, um, which is that we know that one of the miracles that was done in the Mishkan and in the Besamikdash as well, there were 10 miracles. And one of the miracles was that there was a pillar of smoke that went straight up from the Mizbeach, from the altar, up into the heavens right and if a strong wind blew that the pillar of smoke didn't didn't scatter it remained straight up even in the wind and that was a miracle okay so i heard something very beautiful i, I don't know in whose name to say it, who 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 offered it originally but they they said that this is the letter vav you know we're always talking about the letter vav in these classes right so, the, Vav, we know, in the name of Hashem, you know, we always try to spell it from the top down, right? Because it's kind of a map of the word world. So you have the, the Yud is all the way on top, right? And then you have the He below it, right? And then you have the letter Vav. And Vav, we know, is a connection. And the bottom letter He stands for this world, right? That's the name of God. And then, so that Vav is connecting this world up into the heavens. And vav, again, means a relationship. The letter vav connects two things. So we have the idea that the korban itself, the offering itself, right? Or this act of closeness itself, like that pillar of smoke, which which spelled out the letter vav, which didn't change, that that's what's tying us to God. That's what's keeping us in this relationship with God. So so now, maintaining this relationship, I want to transition into another thought, but it's going to go deeper into this idea. You see, to bring an offering, to bring an offering um, requires that a person admit that they did something wrong. Right? Because you're not going to bring it up you're not going to say, "I'm sorry" unless you feel as though you have something to say "I'm sorry for." And that is a struggle in a person. For a person to acknowledge to themselves that they did something wrong is often very, very difficult. And then for them to take action to try to correct what they think that they did wrong is sometimes even more difficult. And the reason why it's so difficult is because it challenges a person to be humble. And to be, in a way, like, I'm using this in the best sense of the word, to be nothing. You know, to be nothing is actually a glorious state of consciousness. In fact, so much so, I'll tell you a story. So, in Kutsk, and I heard this from Reb Shlomo. So in Katsk, really, like you know, we use the word in Hebrew "bital." "Bital" means to to nullify, right? So th- this level was considered like the most prized level, you know. And and as a result, they really didn't they didn't seek to flatter each other at all. So like what we would call like a lot of common acts of politeness and things like that, giving covet to each other in a lot of ways, honoring each other in a lot of ways. They didn't do any, any of that, really, you know? And um, they only stood for two people in Kutsk. They only gave honor, like real Torah honor, to two people in Kutsk. One was the Rebbe, um, and the other was someone who was very, very poor, so poor that he had two sacks over his feet for shoes. He couldn't even afford shoes. So he just had like burlap that he tied onto his ankles, right? Those were his shoes. And he couldn't even afford a yarmulke, a head covering. So he used a leaf on his head for a head covering, right? And so they stood for the Rebbe and they stood for this person. And there was someone who was coming to investigate Katsk, because Kutsk was controversial in the Hasidic world at this point. And someone came in, and he was like a Talmud Chacham, right? Like a scholar. And he was, he was offended by the fact that when he came into the base medrash, into the study hall, no one stood for him, and no one gave him any honor, right? And then they saw this person who's coming in, who had absolutely nothing, just a yarmulke on his head, everyone stood for him. So, this person who was very much an outsider, right, he said, Why are you standing for him? Now, listen to this. Unbelievable. They said, The reason why we stand for him is because he is absolutely nothing, and he's not arrogant about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. This person is really... You see, you have to understand the Sahara, the evil inclination, will try to attack any level. Even if a person decides that they're humble, right? Then you can actually be arrogant about being humble. This is how phenomenal the Sahara is. Right? And, and the Kutzke Rebbe says in another place that every mitzvah requires an act of kavanah beforehand. Meaning to say, even before you say a blessing. And I heard Rabbi Graydon say something so beautiful. All you need to have kavanah before you say a blessing, holy intention, is one second. Literally just one second before you say a blessing, if you just think, I'm about to say a blessing, you'll, the way you'll say that blessing will be substantial, quantumly different. If just one second before you just say to yourself, I'm about to say a blessing. Everything requires kavana, some, some thought. You know, Reb Leibler Eiger, one of the great Hasidic masters, about a hundred years ago, right? He was best friends with Reb Tzadok of Lublin, and was in Kutsk and and in Ishbitz, um, even more so. Um, so, so uh, Reb Leibler Eiger was a mall, right? He would do circumcisions. And he would do them at the end of the day because he would prepare like in his room for like something like eight hours before he would go in for the for the bris. Because there are a lot of people like Rebbe's who understand that the kavanah, the act of longing to do the mitzvah is in some ways even greater than the mitzvah itself. So if you can combine the two, like really be absolutely longing to do the mitzvah then the mitzvah that you do, it's like, it's like, unbelievable, you know? So, so the Kutzker Rebbe says every mitzvah requires some holy intention beforehand, except being humble. Because imagine someone says, says, says that right before you're humble, you say, I am about to do the great mitzvah of being Humble and then and then and then you act with humility it's such arrogance it's riddled with arrogance excuse me i'm preparing myself to be humble can you can you just wait outside for a moment i i have to concentrate <laughs> so so humility Right? The idea that this, this, this great man in Kutsk, who had no learning and not a penny to his name, but wasn't arrogant about it, but wasn't arrogant about it, that was recognized among the Hasidim of Kutsk, who, like, they had, like, laser, laser eyesight, and their radar was, like, exact, and they could smell even, like, a, a whiff of arrogance in a person. Can you imagine? They would stand for this man. And he didn't allow that to affect him. (laughs) Right? I'll tell you another amazing story, just consistent with this, just if you don't know. From the Gomorrah, when Rebbe died, a lot of the sages were sitting around the table, and they said, with the death of Rebbe, humility has left this world. And there was a silence. And Rabbi Yossi said no, I'm still humble. I'm here, and I'm humble. And the sages said, oh yeah, it's right, yeah, yeah. No, 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 humility hasn't left the world. (laughs) They agreed with him. See, this tells you actually even a further thought, which is, we think that humility means lack of (laughs) self-esteem. But A person can be humble and even recognize that they're humble and still be humble. You know what? So so how do you do that? You recognize the fact that really, if God wasn't helping me, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Did I do it? I 100% did it. See, a lot of people think humble means, did I do it? No, I didn't do it. But that's a lie. If you did it, you did it. So then how can I do it, but then not be arrogant about the fact that I did it? Unless I deny that I did it. How can I do it, recognize the fact that I did it, and not get arrogant about it? And the answer is, by saying that the only way I was ever able to do it was because of God. Did I do it? 100% I did. But only because God helped me. So if a person has this attitude, then, 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 they, then they can be humble and even say that they're humble. Because they know that even the ability to say that they're humble is also a gift from God. Okay. So now I want to get into this next idea, which is about humility. And um, there's a medrash... That, uh, I'm sure you all know, it's a classic medrash, very famous. You probably heard it when you were a child. But I want to approach it in a slightly different way. It was strange, I was just kind of driving this week, and I wasn't even thinking about this medrash, but this medrash popped into my head, I don't know why, and then an explanation then came right after. So... It's always good when a question and an answer comes out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, so, so this was one of those moments. So here was the, here's the medrash. The medrash goes like this, and again, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but let's look at it maybe in a slightly different way. So when Moshe was a very young child, Moshe Rabbeinu, he was, um, he was sitting with Paro, Pharaoh, and he took the crown of Pharaoh and he put it on his own head. And Pharaoh's advisors um, saw in this a, uh, an act of rebellion. And actually, they were correct. They were correct. right? But um, that aside, the, the Medrash doesn't make that point. The Medrash says that the advisors of Pharaoh. Um, recommended that Paro kill the child, kill Moshe right away, because he was someone who was going to rebel against the king. And um, Yitro, right? Yitro, who is going to later in life become Moshe's father in law, right? Because Moshe is going to end up marrying Yitro's daughter, but Moshe is still a baby here. Yitro says, No, don't kill him, because it could be that the child really doesn't know what he's doing. He's so young, he doesn't understand the significance of this. So give him a test, put some gold coins over here, which I guess are shiny, right? And put some coals here, and see what she reaches for. And if he reaches for the gold, then you know that the child does have understanding. Right? And then which means that his taking the crown and putting it on his head has significance. Right? So they decide, okay, we'll test to see whether the child understood what he was doing at all. So they put the gold and the coals in front of him, and Moshe reaches for the gold. Right? So this is very dangerous. Basically, that's going to be the death sentence. Right? And then it says the angel Gavria. Pushes Moshe's hand to the coals. Moshe picks up a coal, puts it in his mouth, and that's how Moshe gets his speech defect. Right, because we know Moshe had a speech defect, which is you know it's the the Torah makes a very big deal about Moshe's speech defect. It comes up several times. And um, I know, just speaking personally, people really never connect it with Moshe. <laughs> like, we just think of Moshe as so beyond, as Moshe went up to Shemayim and brought down the Torah, and there's been no greater prophet or person ever than Moshe. That's how we tend to think of Moshe. But we forget the fact that, I mean, I wouldn't even try to imitate a speech defect. But you've heard people with speech defects. Moshe had a speech defect. And I'm not telling you anything. Chas v'shalom, I'm not speaking against Moshe Rabbeinu. I'm telling you what the Torah itself says in, in more than once. And Moshe says it about himself. So, we, you know, if you think about in your own life, anyone who you know that has a speech defect, probably Moshe had one as bad or, or worse. And he was the greatest person that's ever lived. It's an amazing thing. You know, we kind of lose sight of this. Anyway, by the way, it says at Mount Sinai he was healed of it. You should know. But, but Mount Sinai, how old is he at Mount Sinai? He is, you know, eighty years old. You know? um, okay. So so I want to just maybe try to explain this medrash in 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 a little bit. See, I always thought that this medrash was saying was trying to explain how Moshe got his speech defect that's what it seems to seems to be the point of it, right? And then he reaches for the coal, and he puts it in his mouth, and that's how he got his speech defect. It's a uh, rabba, by the way. That's a source of this. So, I don't know. I don't know why it never why it always kind of never really resonated with me that 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 matters. And then it hit me, oh, you know what? It's not talking about how Moshe got his speech defect. It's talking about why he got his speech defect. It's a, it's a completely different thing going on in this medrash. Not how he got it. Okay, maybe it's also discussing that. But the, I think the deeper teaching here is why he got it. So, so on, the, on the most simple level, it was to save Moshe's life. Right? So that's why he got it, in order to save his life. But, but I want to say something maybe a little deeper. Maybe why he got this speech defect was for an even greater purpose than just simply saving his own life. So everything starts with him grabbing for the crown, right? The crown of Para. So the crown, crown in Hebrew is keter. Keter is the gematria six hundred and twenty. Six hundred and twenty is a fabulous number in Torah, because six hundred and twenty is all six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs, plus the seven mitzvahs that the rabbis added. So in other words, the word keter, crown, represents the entirety of the Torah, both the written Torah. And what the rabbis added, the Torah Shabbal Peh. That's the entirety of the Torah is contained in the word crown, Keter. Not only that, but as the Baal Turim points out, 620 is also the number of letters in the Asaras Adibros, the Ten Commandments, which we're told contains the entire Torah. So do you see what's contained in this word, Keter, crown? And we know Kabbalistically When we talk about the the dimension, the Sphera of Keter, Keter is the top of the top of the top of the top, right? As you know, a crown sits above your head, so we're talking about the highest reaches of heaven. So Keter really represents Torah in the most in the fullest way. So what was Moshe Rabbeinu doing? He was reaching for the Torah. But you see, in order to get the Torah, you have to be absolutely humble. (laughs) What did Moshe's speech defect instill in him, probably more than anything in the world? A total sense of humility. You see, let's just understand just sociologically, right, or psychologically for a moment, just what God did in this amazing way. You see, if you are humble, but you live in a very small village, okay, so it's, it's an accomplishment for sure. But you are humble among very, very humble people. Right? You could then take that humble person who's humble among the villagers, and you put him in the palace, and who's to say he's going to stay humble? Right? Right? But now Moshe Rabbeinu is raised, listen to this, it's it's awesome, It's, it's, it's amazing what God did. Moshe Rabbeinu is raised in the palace of the king of Egypt, Egypt at the height of its civilization. Egypt, one of the greatest civilizations and empires the world has ever known, Moshe is raised as the child of the king. Can you imagine the degree of privilege and honor? The number of slaves and servants that, that he had. Now to grow up humble when you're given every single honor and every single like accommodation, that's real humility. Because then you can look any honor in the face, any privilege in the face, and say that it's absolutely nothing. You can't do that if you grow up in a little village. So God put him in this unique environment and gave him this this humble stature in order for Moshe Rabbeinu to be able to achieve true humility. Total humility. In other words, God created out of Moshe through his life circumstances this vessel in order to receive the Torah itself. And I'll tell you just to add on to it for a moment. What, after he puts the crown on his head, and you should know, interestingly, Moshe Rabbeinu had the status of the king of Israel. It says, Melech Yeshuran, at one point in, in Sefer Devarim, that I believe it's in Devarim, that Moshe himself is referred to as the king, as the king of Israel. Now he didn't maintain that status. That's like kind of like a side point. But Moshe actually did achieve the status of king. Okay? So that's the idea of the crown on his head, but we said more, more significantly that the crown represents Ketur Torah, right? The crown of Torah. So then they put the gold and the coals in front of him, and he reaches for the gold. Now listen to this. I heard this once. I don't remember who said it, but something very beautiful. Zahav, that's how you say gold in Hebrew. Zahav is Zion, Hey Vez. Okay? That's in Gematria seven five two. Now if you take the days of the week, the seventh day is Shabbos. We read the Torah on Shabbos. The fifth day is Thursday. We read the Torah on on Thursday. The second day is Monday. We read the Torah on Monday. The three days that we read the Torah, Monday, Thursday, and Shabbos spell out Zahab, gold. So he's still reaching for the Torah. He's still reaching for the Torah. And then he moves the angel Gabriel, which is the angel, Gabriel is Din. Okay? Din is judgment. So, but Din moves his arm over so that he now can be able to be the emissary to bring that Torah into the world. Now, the implications of this are very, very big. So now, hopefully, if you've been following what I've been saying, now we've looked at this medrash in an entirely different way. Not, how did Moshe get his speech defect? But why did he get his speech defect? Why? Why? So now he's this incredible vessel of humility. Growing up in the palace of the king, a vessel of humility, which is an unparalleled, unparalleled vessel of humility. Right? And then he can receive the Torah. So... So this means that his, his speech defect was for the good. That God gave it to him so that he could accomplish his ultimate purpose. Now that's significant, because now this comes back to all of us. This means that the challenges that we're given in our life... Who wants a speech defect? I don't. Who's lining up, okay? Free speech defects. Right? Get your speech defect. You know, special today. Who's lining up for that? No one's lining up for that. No one wants that. Who who wants any of the problems that they have in their life? No one wants any of the problems that they have in their life. But now, if we understand on a deeper level that the problems that we have in our life, just like Moshe's speech defect was so that he could achieve this epic level of humility so that he could receive the Torah from heaven, what about the problems that you and I have in our lives? What greatness is that allowing us to achieve? What act of kindness is hidden in the problems that we're facing? that are going to allow us to access higher levels in our own lives that we never would have been able to reach otherwise. This is the point. This is the point. So, let's, let's wrap it up. So, we have to understand that we're in a relationship with God, and, um, you know, I often describe this class, or this series of talks, as um, couples therapy between us and God, right? Because we're in a relationship, we're in a relationship. That's, that's the essence. And we have to understand that, and we have to treat it that way. That, that all of our lives is an ongoing dialogue with God. God is constantly putting us in different situations, in different places, with different people, with different challenges. And God's saying, How are you, what are you going to do with this situation? What are you going to do with that situation? How are you going to treat this person? What are you going to do for that person? Right? Right? And so we're in this relationship, and, and remember, God fills the entire world. We're always dealing with God. Wherever we go, we're always dealing with God, right? That doesn't mean that you're God, or you're God, or I'm God. It doesn't mean that. doesn't mean that. But God is unique. Remember, when we say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, right, when we talk about the oneness of God, Rav Arn Soloveitchik said, that means, what does it mean, God is one? That means God is unique. That means that there's nothing that you can point to in this world which is like God. There is no... See, like I heard Rabbi Green say, what we think, we don't really think about it, but in the back of our minds what we think is that God is just a bigger, smarter, stronger version of us. It's not true. God is beyond, 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 beyond. Right? And in fact, I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of the original Rebbe, the fact that we even can use the word good to describe God is an act of kindness by God to even allow us to use the word good to describe Him. Because do you know how far beyond good God is? Right? Like Reb Shlomo said, it's like saying to back in the day to um, Rothschild, you're so rich you have $25. What? <laughs> you know? The amount of wealth that Rothschild had—twenty-five dollars—are you making a joke? When we say God is good, that's—it's—it's it's like that's the, the, the not even the tip of the iceberg in describing God. But from God's great kindness, His great chesed to us, He allows us to use certain words to describe Him. But He's way beyond that. This is what it means: Hashem Echad—that Hashem is unique; that there is no, there is no reference point for God, right? So God can fill the entire world and we can be interacting with him constantly, but these are just aspects, just aspects of himself, right? And this is the concept of the relationship and the idea that a relationship, right? Like my dad says that if you don't water a house plant, it dies. That to, main, to have a relationship, you have to Maintain a relationship. You have, to, you have to be active with it, right? And so it's all the more true with us and God. And, um, and that means that we make mistakes because we're human beings and we're not perfect. To be human means to make a mistake. You know, Shlomo um, uh, Amalek, King Solomon, right? The wisest man said that the definition of a tzaddik, a tzaddik is someone who's a righteous person, right? So if you ask me what's the definition of a tzaddik, I would probably tell you someone who doesn't make a mistake, right? So I'll give you a much better definition from Shlomo Melch. Shlomo Melch says the definition of a tzaddik is someone who falls down seven times and gets back up. That means the definition of righteousness is not that you never make a mistake. The definition of righteousness is that you constantly get back up and rededicate yourself. You know, the Choz of Lublin, the seer of Lublin, one of the greatest, most exalted of the Hasidic masters, every day he would get up and he would say, today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Every day he would say this. Can you imagine? I mean, he's one of the greatest tzaddikim that ever lived. But if that's your consciousness about yourself, then you're finished. Right? You know, like the Basham Shem Tov said, someone who's good who thinks he's good, right? There's no hope for that person. <laughs> that doesn't mean not to have self-esteem. It doesn't mean not to have self-esteem. You have to have self-esteem. But you can't consider yourself a finished product right so if you're not a finished product if you're not a finished product what does that mean it means that you're going to make mistakes and then if you make a mistake don't be shocked because one of the barriers to humility to fixing a mistake is that i'm too shocked that i made a mistake i made a mistake how could i have ever made a mistake it's impossible So I can't begin to fix the mistake because it's impossible that I made a mistake. (laughs) But if you think of yourself as a human being who's custom designed to make mistakes, (laughs) then of course you made a mistake. Okay, so I made a mistake. And so it's a big deal. I made a mistake. I'm a human being. Of course I made a mistake. So then you can say, okay, so now what can I do to fix it? And then you're not making a barrier between you and humility right? Because you know you make mistakes from the beginning. You're never going to stop making mistakes. Okay. Okay, now I can be humble. And now I can start to look into some of the problems in my life and realize that maybe they're actually opportunities. Maybe some of the problems in my life are actually opportunities. Just like Moshe's speech defect was the opportunity for him to be able to achieve the highest highest heights because he was able to access the Torah through his exalted humility. And again, we said, what is humility? Not that you didn't do what you did. If you say, I didn't do it, then that's a lie. That's not being humble. It's a lie. If you did it, and you did something great, you did it. Moshe knew that he brought us the Torah. He didn't deny that he brought us the Torah. But he said, what are you talking about? It was all from God. Everything is from God. So, Shem should bless us with just the best Purim, right? And, um, you know, with the most Simcha. Because a person who's humble is really able to appreciate everything around them. See, if you're not humble, then... Why is this wrong, and why is this wrong, and why is this wrong, and why is this wrong? So how can I be happy when there are ten things wrong? But if I'm humble, then I'm like, you mean I have this? You mean I have that? You mean I have this? You mean I have that? Then you can be happy about everything. Right? So Hashem should bless us with true humility so that we can achieve true simcha and that we can really reveal Hashem's oneness in this world. This talk is sponsored by um, Dorothy Melvin uh, in the name of her family who all um, arrived at Auschwitz on of Purim. And um, her father, Mordechai ben Yitzchak, and her uncle, Shmuel, survived it. But the rest of the family uh, were all holy corbonos. And, um May the Torah that we're about to learn be an elevation for all of their souls.